Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. One of my favorite snippets of off-key futurology is a quote from Harvard professor, Nobel laureate, and biotech mogul Wally Gilbert, in which he claims that one of the most remarkable outcomes of the Human Genome Project would be the ability for a person to store their genome, the blueprint of their unique humanness, on a CD in their pocket. Pockets in the 90s must have been bigger than they are today. That aside, this quote illustrates how promoters of the Human Genome Project imagined that molecular genetics could explain everything, a perspective that scholars of modern biomedicine have afforded legitimacy despite the critiques they have launched from multiple angles. Andrew Hogan's Life Histories of Genetic Disease, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2016, provides a historical challenge to what we might call a pervasive molecularization narrative by showing how diseases were made genetic within the clinic. Hogan, an assistant professor of history at Creighton University, focuses on chromosomal and prenatal diagnosis, ultimately showing how clinicians came to adopt a one-mutation, one-disease epistemology in practice. The piecemeal infrastructure they forged was one seriously engaged with the ethical entanglements of disability and prenatal diagnosis. While molecular biologists sought institutional largesse through hubristic promises of molecular medicine, they ultimately had to work with clinical models established by early applications of human genetics to the treatment of real, rather than imagined, patients. I began by asking Hogan how his background equipped him to take up the topic. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, so I started as um, I did my undergraduate degree at Cornell in uh, molecular and cell biology. And so I have a science genetics uh, background specifically. And uh, for much of the time I was in college, I thought that I would probably become a laboratory geneticist. And I worked in a laboratory for a number of years and kind of decided that that wasn't quite the direction for me. And so when I graduated, well, my senior year, I took a number of STS-like classes at Cornell with people like Michael Lynch and Stephen Hilgartner, who really sort of opened my mind to uh, social science perspectives on genetics and biology. And um, after a year uh, off in which I was a high school chemistry teacher, I decided to sort of pursue STS and ultimately the history of science and medicine Uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I did my PhD in the history and sociology of science. Um, And initially, I was interested in sort of um, ethical aspects of emerging genetic technologies. I've always had a somewhat contemporary focus, and that's sort of the STS element of my work. 
But Penn is a very much history-oriented program, and so I became increasingly sort of historically oriented and really fell in love with the history of science and medicine during my first few years there. And um, over time sort of came to a PhD project that was oriented around the history of various genetic uh, conditions. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of got into picking particular disorders based on the exposure they had at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a wonderful potential research site, right? Um, and so basically I would be able to go across the street and attend Genetics Grand Rounds, grand rounds once a week. I'd be able to interview um, and get to know various geneticists in obstetrics and in pediatrics and in various fields, genetic counseling, medical genetics, internal medicine. And over time I sort of identified a number of genetic conditions uh, through which I wanted to explore how did these conditions over time get delineated and get made genetic in a sense. And what I discovered over time was that, uh, in effect, if you trace the history back of these conditions, the life history, as I call it in the book, you, I, you sort of see this slow development of the identification of various patterns pulling together various physical features that ultimately get associated with a particular uh, genetic location. And so that was the focus of my dissertation project. And from there, I went on over the next three years or so to develop it into a book, um, which is added in which I added some new chapters, um, but which largely follow the same case studies as the dissertation. The book provides a subtle challenge to both the current dogma of the field of molecular genetics and even the existing historiography of genetics. So I asked Hogan to unpack how he understands the stakes of this contribution. What does it mean to think about genetic life histories? Yeah, you know, I think a central part of what I discovered over time is that geneticists often want to believe that or they'll often sort of create this story where they'll say, well, things are getting more complicated. We're beginning to really understand that that things are more complex and they're multidimensional. And yet so many of their working models are still this one-to-one -one hypothesis. So many of the, the conditions that they look back to um, is oriented around this idea that first we need to locate it in the genome and then we're gonna, we can understand them more. Uh, extreme complexities. And I'm even, my next project looks a little bit more at the history of clinical psychology. And I'm even starting to see this model sort of coming up in the clinical psychology and developmental disabilities fields during the 1980s and 1990s. And, but at the same time, I think it's worth keeping in mind that these life histories of uh, genetic diseases, I call them, are complicated in various ways, right? Um, and, you know, there's both sort of uh, individualized history of a, dis of a condition as it's observed in a particular individual, and there's a more sort of general uh, history of a condition. And bringing these two things together is part of what my actors do over time. So they begin with a particular case that they see, and then they sort of go to the literature and try to build a condition out of that and try to sort of 
identify a pattern which tends to build over time. And so at one point in my first chapter, I, I refer to these individuals as genetics detectives, that they're sort of looking for these different traits um, that become associated as they build up a condition and then convince themselves this must be a discrete ontological thing but we can only really truly know that once we find a mutation in the genome that can correlate to that. And that is a very interesting aspect of, I think, this history, which really reflects their thinking. And yeah, it's circular because they sort of are, know what they're looking for and then they go and find it, right? Hogan traces some exemplary genetic conditions to illustrate his argument, the first of which is Fragile X syndrome. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story that involves a, a unique sort of mutation and a unique um, set of uh, physical conditions as well. Uh, you know, as opposed to a, a clear sort of single gene mutation that you can sort of trace through a family without even necessarily knowing where it is or what it is, uh, Fragile X syndrome behaved in unusual ways. Initially, it was thought to only affect males, though over time, um, actually through, I mean, initially, patients and their families realized this well ahead of most of the physicians who didn't really want to believe it. Uh, they realized that it actually affected female carriers as well. And so as an X-link disorder and as one that sort of, you know, skipped generations in strange ways, Fragile X was not the sort of condition that followed the sort of pattern that people expected. Um, and it was at once a chromosomal condition and a heritable sort of Mendelian, if you will, condition, which was quite unusual and really sort of brought these two worlds together in unique ways, which uh, led to sort of the identification of new epigenetic traits. And multiple of the conditions I look at, Fragile X as well as Prader-Willi syndrome, both have these epigenetic traits and become um, in their own way sort of models for a new level of genetic thinking in the 1990s. So bringing together the um, the sort of traditional Mendelian understandings of pedigree analysis with the chromosomal potentials of looking for mutations, actual visible mutations. Normally, Mendelian mutations aren't assumed to be visible, but in this case, they were. And so this was one of the unusual traits of Fragile X syndrome that really fascinated people and really made it an interesting and telling case for the book. Hogan's work engages with the history of technology and biomedicine at a material and conceptual level through his insistence on infrastructure, how geneticists use tools to visualize and therefore see human chromosomes in a standard way, such that they don't have to really think about them. What I sort of realized over time is that there was sort of an accidental, if you will, nature to the way that gene mapping and genetic diagnosis and prevention came about. That so much of what I study is really rooted in this history of the assumption that if we just sort of find the genes and the locations for lots of genetic disorders, 
then eventually we can engage in gene therapy and that this will be the ultimate treatment and outcome of these efforts. And going back to the late 1960s, straight through the 1990s and the 2000s, there was a huge push to leading up to the Human Genome Project and including it to map these diseases, to find them, to locate them, and therefore to treat them. And over time, this led to the development of what I call an infrastructure. And the infrastructure is importantly based on a set of, of diagrams, of chromosomal ideograms, which are particularly familiar to my actors, are things that they get to know almost like neighborhoods that they put up on posters in their laboratories or in their offices that they show their patients or they show their other colleagues and they talk about these almost neighborhoods. And I started thinking of this almost as, you know, their familiarity with this is somewhat like our familiarity if you live in a city with the subway system or other forms of infrastructure. And that these infrastructures become something that you know and something that sort of goes on in the background and that shapes your everyday life. And on a level, you don't even really think about them anymore. And they have both intended and unintended consequences. And one of the big unintended consequences of the building of this infrastructure was that once you got to the early 2000s where whole genome sequencing was possible um, in people and also prenatally, you had the use of this infrastructure that was built up for gene therapy to actually be used for genetic prevention and uh, through amniocentesis or CVS um, and abortion, ultimately, if a woman chose that. And so I kind of saw this building of an infrastructure as a, a part of this ongoing history of eugenics that we've been tracing in the history of genetics, history of biology in recent years that really sort of ties straight through from the early 20th century up to the present day. And other scholars have done more to tie this together, but the, the links are certainly there in my work as well. I asked Hogan to explain more how genetic lesions, otherwise invisible, became visible to clinicians to adopt the framework developed by Michel Foucault. And he described the use of banding techniques. Uh, Fragile X was certainly very important in this because it was one of the first conditions where somebody, I mean, really, I mean, the term fragile X literally means there is this place that we can see along the X chromosome where it's likely to, a piece of the chromosome seems likely to break off because there's a little bit of a constriction there, a secondary constriction, as they call it. And so the, the visibility that was relevant to fragile X syndrome, kind of like Down syndrome with the presence of an extra chromosome, gets extended to all of these other conditions. The idea that you can actually see the genetic cause of disease under the microscope is really an important aspect of bridging the gap between sort of a gross chromosomal abnormality and a more discrete condition. And the introduction of genetic banding techniques really allows or allowed um, my actors to take this to an increasingly small level, but uh, increasingly sort of mic <coughs> tiny microscopic level. But of course, the level of resolution was questionable throughout. And so the degree to which you could see it or not see it uh, was certainly a matter of debate. Um, so could you see this small deletion? Was it really there? Would you see it every time? Would every researcher see it every time? But if you could agree that there really was a mutation or a deletion in a particular location, then you would have this banding pattern, which would allow you 
to sort of communicate that and associate with a particular infrastructure, which was increasingly being built up over this time. Another big medical idea the book engages with is the idea of a human genetic morbid anatomy developed by Victor McCusick, who serves as a fulcrum for Hogan's narrative. Well, I, I think the morbid anatomy concept really brought genetics. I mean, McCusick really wanted to make genetics more palatable and legible for his colleagues in medicine and internal medicine. And, you know, genetics has been part of medicine for a long time, but in a relatively narrow band. And it was only in recent decades that physicians more broadly came to be interested in genetics and see it as something that might be important to their, you know, something they need to know about, something important to their day-to-day -day profession. And so what McCusick wanted to do was to bring a history, <clears throat> to bring together the history of genetics and the history of medicine. And to do this, he focused on a sort of classical figure in the history of medicine, Morgani, and his concept of the morbid anatomy. And so you would say, you know, going way back to the 16th century, uh, we've been looking into the body to identify the locations of, of genetic conditions, or not genetic, but of, uh, of lesions uh, that we can sort of identify to particular locations. And so genetics is just the next, next natural step of this. And so you can understand um, doing a morbid anatomy of the human genome as being equivalent to doing a morbid anatomy of your patient. And so this is just the new body. This is the new anatomy that we as physicians are going to be doing in the 20, 20th and 21st century. And so this is part of what we do. It's not something that just a geneticist or a researcher does. And, you know, McCusick said we can show you the results of this through that infrastructure, through that map. And the maps, I mean, he really created the morbid anatomy of the human genome is the infrastructure in a sense. It's the thing that a lot of my actors had in the back of their head and were thinking about as they were, um, you know, doing what they did. This is what a medical geneticist in a sense did is add more locations to the morbid anatomy of the human genome, just as a pathologist historically would add more locations to the morbid anatomy of the human body. I asked Hogan further to weigh in on what was novel in this formulation, or rather, whether there were any viable alternatives. I mean, I think McCusick was definitely tying into other sort of ways of thinking in medicine and ways of thinking in genetics. And probably what he did somewhat uniquely was to bring them together in this particular package, which allowed him to sell genetic medicine to a broader group of people. And yeah, you're right. I mean, he was an institutionalist. He he created or helped along and really kept going the Bar Harbor class, which was meant to teach people what medical genetics was and how do you do that. He brought people into his laboratory or into his research group to train them in medical genetics so they could go back and do, uh, do medical genetics, bring it to other locations. And so this, in his, this was another of his 
ways of sort of institutionalizing medical genetics in medical textbooks, in medical thinking, in medical databases, and in various institutional settings over time. And so, you know, he, he didn't need to be unique because he was trying to draw on um, things that his colleagues understood, but I think the way he brought it together was actually quite unique for its moment. The use of molecular techniques, in Hogan's picture, seems less profound than its proponents and critics have made it out to be. So I asked him to clarify the continuities between cytogenetic techniques, like banding and microscopic analysis required thereby, and molecular markers that came into use later. I mean, there were many different aspects of the molecular shift, right? And, and there were many different players who were trying to promote it, trying to get funding for it, trying to convince people that this was the way of the future. And some of them certainly tried that more monumental approach. I think the actors that I was looking at that I was more interested in were interested in saying there's these problems that the that we have with resolution, with trying to identify genetic uh, mutations that are just going to be below the level of visibility under the microscope to any extent that we, we can reliably do it. And so much about medicine and diagnosis is reliability, right? And so they said, you know, we're familiar with these new tools and we think that we're going to be able to use them in ways to further what we're already doing. And so it's not necessarily that there's cytogenetics and then there's molecular genetics and there's these two different things that there is this thing called molecular cytogenetics that brings these two levels of analysis together in a very functional way for the cytogeneticists who are trying to do it. And sometimes molecular people got really interested in it and sort of said, teach me about the cytogenetics so I can do it as well. And often it was cytogeneticists who were saying, this is the wave of the future. We still are a seeing field. We still like to look under the microscope. We still believe in the importance of visuality and location and geography. Um, we, we don't live in this abstract world of nucleotides and data. Uh, pure data, but we can use these molecular tools to make visible, to bridge the gap, if you will, and see the things that we weren't able to see before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an undertold story in the history of genetics, is how these two fields really sort of came together and hybridized in various ways. As all historians of science and STS scholars know, the walls of institutions influence how categories get defined what gets included and excluded. Hogan shows this in his chapter on how two diseases became collapsed into one, and what this process has to say about the history of disability. So when I was doing this research, when I was giving presentations, I would regularly be pushed by my colleagues at Penn and elsewhere, by people and audiences, to sort of take a look at this story from a disability perspective. So. The book, Life Histories, is very much a medical history, a medical perspective on this. And, you know, with DeGeorgian Velocardiofacial Syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, it really, the the naming of a condition is really important medically, but it's also really important in terms of disability history. Um, A lot of the conditions that I look at for this book and more broadly in my research have gone through various names, and those names have had um, have existed for various reasons. So um, Angelman syndrome, which is one condition I look at in my book, was initially called happy puppet syndrome. And 
when it was initially called that, it was actually a very effective name to the extent that it helped people in other places recognize, yes, we have found this condition in a particular patient. But of course, it was very offensive and stigmatizing. And so over time, there was a push, not so much by disability advocates, but by more sort of aware pediatricians to say, we need to rethink the name of this condition. And that's also true to some extent in the history of naming uh, along the lines of, say, naming a condition 22Q11 deletion syndrome. Now, I mean, it's a very functional and specific name from the perspective of a geneticist, but from a family, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, you don't know this language. You don't know what 22Q11 means. And so the need or the desire for a eponymous name like DeGeorge is very appealing for families because it sounds legitimate. It's something that they can remember. It's something they can use. Um, one of my first papers after finishing the book was about other cases of medical eponyms and how they were adopted actually um, really following the lead of more activist thinking pediatricians or families to find a more legitimate and less stigmatizing name for their condition. So I look at the history of the shift from mongolism to Down syndrome. I look at the adoption of other eponyms that really sort of benefited families um, from the perspective of, wow, we can really sort of understand it and what this means and say it to other people. And they understand this as like a legitimate name for a condition that's easy to remember. Um, and so my, my second book project, which I've started recently, is looking at a similar history, but from more the disability perspective. So we have a very good sort of history of how more positive, inclusive narratives of disability have entered our society in recent decades um, through government programs, through popular culture, etc. We don't have as good of a sort of knowledge of how it's and how these narratives have influenced the clinical community or the medical community. And so my next book project is seeking to better understand the extent to which more positive, inclusive, what we might call social model narratives of disability have begun potentially to enter and influence the clinical and medical community since the 1960s up to the present. Finally, Hogan discusses the microarray, a signal diagnostic technology of modern genetics in which one can screen for a vast number of gene products related to different sets of disorders. I asked him to tie this into current discussions about risk in medicine, like the one presented by Robbie Aronowitz when I spoke to him on this channel a few years back. Yeah, chromosomal analysis has always been a whole genome analysis, and there have been uncertain results that have come up in chromosomal analysis going right back to the beginning. And so it's not a new thing to have an incidental finding or a finding of uncertain clinical significance in a sort of very standard, very low-resolution chromosomal analysis from the 1960s or 70s. But with microarrays, they are much more common to the extent that they may happen almost every time, depending on the level of resolution that you get to. And so a microarray really takes, it bridges the gap and takes the molecular level analysis and uh, allows whole genome analysis to be done with that. And this can be very powerful in the pediatric setting or the cancer setting or the adult medicine setting in terms of identifying, 
<coughs> excuse me, a genetic trait in a particular individual which might affect their diagnosis or their treatment options. But there's been a lot of concern over the last decade or so with the application of this technology to prenatal diagnosis because of the level of uncertainty, the number of um, findings of uncertain clinical significance that come up uh, in these cases, and the question, the larger question of what is the purpose of the application of this technology? Are we only going to try to prevent conditions like Down syndrome, which have a relatively high prevalence in the grand scheme of things? Or are we going to begin to actually market tests that identify conditions maybe that have a one in 50,000 chance of happening? And, you know, at what level do we sort of stop and say, maybe this is not an appropriate um, thing to, st to sell to people or to market to people, or an appropriate idea to tell people that we can find everything uh, with this particular test, right? Um, and I mean, it, it's really quite fascinating that doing multiple tests can often be cheaper than doing just one. So if a family has a genetic condition, they want to test for it in a pregnancy, it might be cheaper to actually do a whole panel of tests, say 12 or 50 or 100 tests, because that panel is pre-existing. And so you can do it for 100 or $200, but the single test might cost thousands of dollars because it's a much more complicated test. And so increasingly, we're seeing this move with microarray and other similar technologies towards testing for a lot more than many parents realize that they are. And even to the level where it becomes such a standard part of practice, not microarray, but doing some degree of prenatal genetic testing that parents don't even realize what they're sort of getting themselves into. And there can be a series of uh, a cascade of interventions, if you will, that comes out of this. So while he alluded to his new project throughout, I had Hogan expand on his newer work on disability in medicine to conclude our discussion. Sure. So my next book project is called Evolving Narratives of Developmental Disabilities in Post-War Clinical Professions. And, you know, I described the I, the focus on sort of looking at how what we might call social model, more inclusive narratives of disability have maybe entered and affected or perhaps been rejected by uh, clinical and medical communities over the course of the late 20th century and early 21st century. The idea being to sort of expand our knowledge of the history of disability into the medical community and see if there is a because there is a real sort of cultural and theoretical gap between what we might call the social model and the medical model of disability and while this has had a lot of value on both sides really it's problematic for people with disabilities in their day-to-day -day lives because they often find themselves torn between should i sort of take on a, a purely medicalized perspective on my disability or my child's disability, or should I take on this more sort of disability studies perspective, and is there a middle ground? And so I'm interested in sort of exploring the formulation of this middle ground in various clinical fields. And so I'm looking at three different fields, clinical psychology, um, genetic counseling, and pediatrics. 
And my focus to this point, I've been working on it for about a year now, has been clinical psychology, uh, with a particular focus on various figures in the late 20th century. One of them is Wolf Wolfensberger, who is both a clinical psychologist and a disability advocate, seeking to sort of bridge that gap between uh, these two sides and seeing what sorts of pushback he got, how he fit into his field, how his ambitions to offer a new more socially oriented perspective on disability affected his professional life and his career advancement and his publication uh, status and um, how he sort of fit into the professional community and how well his students did as well, right? Uh, so I received a National Science Foundation grant, a three-year grant this past year to uh, do that project and I hired a lot of uh, undergraduate students and I've started doing archival research in various locations and things are moving forward. Um, so I'm very excited to begin writing more about the formulation of the medical model and social model concept in various fields um, of disability and sort of how disability, the evolving ways in which disability has been understood in psychology and other clinical disciplines. Thanks for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society on the New Books Network.